This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today on the podcast, I'm really excited to have a guest uh, with me today. And it's been a while since I've had a guest on the podcast. And this is one that I have been thinking about and wanting to have for a while. And I just didn't let her know that I was wanting to have her on the show. So when I reached out to her, she was gracious and accepted. And I'm really excited to have Michelle Mays on the show today. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks. So Michelle, really, I'm going to let her introduce herself because she can tell you a little bit more about how amazing she is and the work that she's doing, but her focus really is on partner healing from betrayal trauma. So talk a little bit, Michelle, about um, what you do and who you are. Okay. All right. Well, I've been in the field for about 20 years and I am the founder and clinical director at the Center for Relational Recovery. And that is a counseling center located in Northern Virginia outside of DC. And at the center, we provide treatment to betrayed partners, people dealing with childhood trauma, sex addiction, and relationship issues. And we're really known for treating the whole system at the same time. So we treat the addict, the partner, and the couple simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also the founder of Partner Hope, and that is a online resource for betrayed partners. And we offer a coaching program called Braving Hope becoming the hero of your betrayal story through there. And that's where a lot of my work with betrayed partners happened. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because I think you do a phenomenal job just about the impact of betrayal trauma. And I mean, I think, you know, therapists and people in general can understand that that's going to leave a mark, so to speak. But I want to have listeners understand a little bit more about the impact of betrayal trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, when I think about betrayal trauma, I draw a lot on Jennifer Freyd's work. She's actually the founder of betrayal trauma theory. And when she started working in that arena, she was working with children and she was really working with childhood trauma that had betrayal at its center. I think her work is absolutely applicable to adults who also have experiences with betrayal at the center of the experience. And so when we're talking about betrayal trauma, we're talking about a relational rupture that happens in a relationship with somebody that you are dependent upon and they betray your trust in a very significant way. And that is experienced by the body and by the mind and by the heart as a uh, terribly disruptive and distressing trauma. Mm -hmm. And you were mentioning before we hit record just about how for you, you don't necessarily see the nervous system as separate from the attachment of an individual. So talk a little bit about that as well. Well, so the way that I sort of conceptualize betrayal trauma is I think that at the very heart of it is the relational rupture that occurs when betrayal happens. So when we are in our primary relationship with somebody, our partner is our primary attachment figure in the world. So adult attachment actually mirrors childhood attachment, looks the same as it did when we attached to our caregivers, but now we're attached to our partner. And I have a lot of betrayed partners say to me, well, I'm not really attached because he's been in an addiction or he's been unavailable or she's been 
you know, not really showing up for the relationship. So I don't think I'm really attached or they're not attached to me. And the reality is your primary partner is your primary attachment, even if the attachment doesn't feel good. Mm. So you have to think about attachment is it's happening at the level of your body. Our partner actually regulates our heart rate, our blood pressure, our hormone levels, our breathing. So we are attached. If you're in a relationship, a long-term romantic relationship, you are attached to your partner, even if it doesn't feel like the attachment is functioning very well. Mm -hmm. So when betrayal happens, it ruptures that attachment and it, it eliminates safety in the relationship. It creates an enormous sense of threat to your relational connection with your partner. And when that happens, that rupture, that relational disconnection that happens so abruptly is what actually creates the distress in the nervous system. Okay. That's actually what causes your threat center to fire, mm -hmm. everything to start going into distress in your body and all of the trauma symptoms that we talk about when we're talking about betrayal trauma, they start at the point of relational disconnection. So they start in your attachment system and then they fire out into your nervous system and affect all of your, all of your bodily based uh, systems mm -hmm. by putting you into distress. So kind of it starts and then spreads out into the body in terms of like fight flight, like what would happen when there's any type of danger to the nervous system? Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I think we've got pretty a pretty good handle on this in the field is that it does activate normal trauma responses. So when we experience threat, you know, we either go into hyper arousal or hypo arousal. So we're either getting very stressed, anxious, hypervigilant, revved up, sleepless, et cetera, or we're getting depressed, numbed out, frozen, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. We're usually going in one of those two directions or we're back and forth between the yeah, two of them. Right. Yeah. I, see so that. I, think we've, I think we've got, yeah, I think we've got that, that we understand that it's trauma symptoms that are happening. I think the focus of my work right now is really on looking at attachment and how attachment theory informs what's happening for partners. Mm. So the piece that I am really looking at is when all of that goes on in the body, what's actually happening to us? So what actually happens to us is that we have two motivational systems in our body. We have our threat response system and we have our attachment system. They both operate on instinct inside of us. They're motivational. And usually they sync up really well because typically, like if you go to work and you have a bad day at the office, you have a conflict with your uh, boss or something happens, you want to text your partner. Like you go back to your desk, you pick up your phone, you text your partner, right? You, you want to talk about it with them at the end of the day. That is how our attachment system operates. So when we go into distress, our attachment system fires and says, move closer to your primary attachment figure. So when we experience betrayal at the hands of our partner, now we've got an attachment system that is firing and saying, move towards your partner. They're the person you turn to when you're distressed. But we've also got a threat response system firing that says fight or run away or freeze, like get away from the danger in some way. Right. But now these two systems that usually work well together are actually now opposing one another. And this is like this enormous dilemma. I call this attachment ambivalence. 
that partners get caught up in with their partner because they are in this dilemma of the very person that I normally turn to for support, comfort, reassurance, they're my person in the world, mm -hmm. is now the person who is also dangerous to me and a threat to me and has caused my pain. And I now don't know whether I should move toward them or away from them. And my systems, my attachment system is saying move toward and my threat response system is saying move away. Right. And now I am caught in this bind and I'm in enormous distress and everything is firing in my body in both directions and I don't really know what to do with myself. A couple of questions as I was listening to you. Number one, do you find that their attachment story prior to this adult relationship informs that uh, response at all or magnifies it or how does that work? You know, I think with everybody, how your attachment style informs how you respond to things. So it definitely has an impact on it. However, what I would say just over many, many years of observing partners is that when you experience betrayal, regardless of whether you are securely attached, insecurely attached, whatever, you are usually thrown into this kind of chaos. Mm -hmm. And this kind of moving toward, moving away, moving toward, moving away, moving toward, moving away dynamic that's that attachment ambivalence, regardless of what your attachment system looked like beforehand. Okay. Really secure partners get in that. I've seen insecure partners in that. I think this is sometimes why partners in the treatment field get uh, overdiagnosed as borderline or overdiagnosed with, they're caught in this biologically based dilemma of moving toward, moving away, moving toward, moving away. That's these two systems working at work in their body. And so I think what happens for partners is how their attachment system functions, their typical attachment style, how it functions mm -hmm. can change in the aftermath of betrayal. So you could take somebody who is securely attached beforehand and they would look very insecurely attached when they're in this dynamic. Or you could take somebody who is insecurely attached and they could look like they are uh, fearful avoidant, which is a high trauma. This is when you're fearful avoidant is when you are both, you're using all the coping skills interchangeably, all the coping relationally interchangeably, right? Yeah. But I think post-betrayal, it can look different for a period of time than what your typical attachment style might look like. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. This wasn't my second part, I'll get to that, but because I find sometimes in partner groups how their spouse acted out, right? There's kind of a hierarchy that partners mm -hmm. feel, right? Like if my partner only acted out with pornography versus acted out with actual live people, right? Versus acting out with males, partners, female. Partners seem to feel like that's an issue, right? I find that. Like they don't want to be the only partner where their spouse acted out with somebody in real life versus everybody else was with pornography. But do, do you find, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing the answer, but do you find that really, again, there's much difference because betrayal is betrayal? Yeah. At the level of your body and how your body experiences betrayal, it really doesn't matter which category of behavior you're falling into. Mm -hmm. You've experienced that fundamental rupture in the attachment and then, I mean, we haven't even talked about the lying and what all the lying does on top of that, you know, but it, it just decreases trust and safety so radically within the relationship. 
And it's such a betrayal of trust, which is your fundamental thing that you need for safety mm -hmm. in the relationship. So it really doesn't matter what behavior category your partner is in, the body experiences it the same way each time. So would that thought of like, if only he had done this, or if only he hadn't done that, right? Is that just part of that hyper arousal, just kind of that kind of bouncing around trying to find something to land on or trying to find something that maybe starts to settle? I think it's bargaining with grief. Okay. Yeah. Right. I think that betrayed partners are trying to figure out a way to make what has happened to them manageable. Mm-hmm. And the way, one of the ways to do that is to think about how it could be worse <laughs> and, and think, well, at least it wasn't X mm -hmm. now makes this feel a little bit more manageable to me, mm -hmm. but it's just trying to manage your grief and your loss around what has happened to you. Mm -hmm. And I don't actually think it's a very helpful way to do it because I think the reality is what has happened has happened and now there is the work of working through that period. And so the whole thing about, well, it could always be worse. Anytime I hear anybody talk like that, whether it's a betrayed partner or somebody who I'm dealing with their family of origin trauma, it's a way of sort of not coming into contact with what did happen to you. Right. And you have to come into contact with it to begin to heal it. So I don't think it's actually very helpful, but it's a normal thing that partners do. Kind of this illusion of protection yeah, it's a coping, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. This was my other question. I know with uh, addicts, you know, we kind of have timelines with things. And again, all timelines are subject to change and mm -hmm. are based on the individual client, right? Mm -hmm. But what does that look like for partners moving through betrayal trauma? Mm -hmm. What's what the timeline look like? Journey. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for a lot of partners, you know, in the immediate aftermath, of discovery, that is when everything is just so extremely acute because your normal coping abilities have been blown out. Mm -hmm. Your normal coping abilities are not enough usually for what has happened. And so now you're sort of scrambling around trying to, trying to figure out how to manage this thing that's really just blown you outside of all your normal resources. Mm -hmm. At the exact same time, you're often in a dynamic with your partner where your partner who has cheated, however, however they've cheated in whatever form or fashion that looks like, they've often been caught. Usually that's how it happens, not always. They've often been caught. And now they're also in this, like, I talk often about how uh, the cheating partner gets caught in their competing attachments. Mm. They're attached to you, they're attached to their addiction, and now they have to decide. Because mm -hmm. now, that, now that everybody knows about it, most betrayed partners are saying, guess what? The gig is up. Right. You now must choose and you better choose me or else, you know, we're not going to be together. And often the cheating partner, the addicted partner is actually trying to keep their other attachment while managing their primary attachment. So there's ongoing lying, there's ongoing discoveries. So the betrayed partner is often in the most acute stage of things because the betrayals continue to unfold even as their coping capacity is maxed out so severely. So that can go on for differing amounts of time for people, you know, but that's kind of the normal first stage of things. I think when we see things kind of shift on that and shift out of that is when either 
the betrayed partner gets real clarity about, I'm not willing to continue in this. If the lying keeps going on, if the betrayal keeps going on, then I'm not willing to do this. And they sort of rescue themselves out of that by either setting really crisp, clear boundaries, or they may exit the relationship. Okay. Or the other thing that I see shifted is the cheating partner comes to Jesus and figures out, I have to give up my addiction. I have to give up the competing attachment. I have to get into recovery and they start working on things. And then the couple typically will move into the phase where they start to actually deal with what's happened. Okay. And this is where the partner starts to actually get help managing their trauma symptoms, get help knowing how to do relationship with this person as they're trying to work on things. Disclosure, full disclosure happens typically during this stage. There's a lot of work that happens to help manage and support and build skills mm -hmm. around what has happened. And then the next stage after that is usually post-disclosure. Mm -hmm. And that's the stage where if you're staying together as a couple and you're both working on things, you're often now really doing the deeper repair work around what actually happened during the cheating. So you're really doing the deeper emotional work to rebuild the relationship. Mm -hmm. I think if you're single, if you're not staying in your relationship, those phases are the same, but I think there is this the middle phase of doing the work to really understand the trauma, understand what happened, deal with your trauma symptoms, build skills, et cetera. And then I would say that last stage, instead of being a repair stage with your partner, is really about repairing with yourself mm -hmm. and learning how to do relationships differently and beginning to think about who would I want as a new partner and how would I do that in a very, very different way. Right. So I think those, I, that's kind of how I see the stages and phases of treatment. And um, it's just hard to put, I know I'm going to have people email me and say, but what about the timeline? It's just really hard to put a time to those stages. It's so hard to put a time to those stages because I have seen people come in, have discovery, the partner gets really clear, really fast, sets really crisp boundaries. The addict gets clear really fast, gets into recovery. Things go much quicker. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I've seen other people who they stay in this initial acute trauma with the unfolding lying and betrayals. I've seen people do that for four years. Right. You know, I mean, I have literally seen people stay and that's like a hell realm, but I've seen people stay there for very long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So it really varies a lot. But I would say if you're a betrayed partner, the key to it all is for you to get clear about where your power lies in the relationship mm -hmm. and to begin to operate out of your power, your personal power and out of a place of empowerment to set boundaries, to use your voice effectively, to ask for what you need, to do all those things that are really scary to do, mm -hmm. but are the things that actually bring change and move you out of that terribly acute, that terrible acute phase where it feels so, so painful. Mm -hmm. So I know um, we had briefly talked to just about male partners and what you see male partners in terms of the work that you do with betrayal trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we do work with male partners. I don't really see huge differences mm -hmm. between male and female partners and male partners out there. Feel free to correct me, you know, on that. But I think we've been socialized differently. And so I think for women, women tend to very much see themselves as responsible for the partner's cheating. Mm -hmm. I think our 
cultural tells women that, you know, if uh, you got cheated on, you did something wrong, you couldn't hold on to your man kind of thing. Or not doing enough. Yeah, so in some way, it's your fault that this happened. So I think there's a little bit of a heavier burden for women in that way. But I think for men, men are socialized so that I think affairs and cheating hit their sense of, you know, being a cuckold, like something you're not man enough kind of in some way. So I think it's an interesting where, but where I see this as identical as the same thing is that whether you're a man or a woman, it sort of hits you at the heart of your sense of femininity, masculinity, whatever, wherever you are with that, it hits that man or woman enough feeling in a similar way, just experienced by different genders differently. Mm-hmm. So you find though that males working with female partners, male partners working with female partners is successful. They can relate, they can support, they can identify with each other. Yeah. So we have had mixed groups that we run at the center with men and women, both in partner groups together. I know we've got men in our coaching program with a bunch of women doing really well in there. I run a private Facebook group for Betrayed Partners. We've got a slew of men in there, a ton of men in there, and everybody is talking the same language Mm -hmm. and sharing the same stories and offering support in the same ways to one another. Yeah, which is great. I'm going to have you at the end kind of go over again the resources you offer because particularly, I mean, I think your resources are great for female partners, but particularly there just is a shortage for male partners. Mm -hmm. I'll have you go through that again too. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So let's talk for a minute about maybe some of the socialization. When I had reached out to you and we were emailing back and forth, I had said like, sometimes I find partners who, and I think this goes to some of the socialization and the messages that they received, mm-hmm. really find themselves somewhat helpless in this healing process mm-hmm. and really feel that they are dependent on his healing for their healing to take place. Mm-hmm. But I noticed when you were talking about that, you talked about that phase of partners rescuing themselves. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I, I think that probably does have a lot to do with socialization. I also think it has an enormous amount to do with fear. Mm. So one of the biggest things I see with betrayed partners is they've gone through the experience of betrayal which means they've experienced massive loss. They've experienced loss of their relation, the relationship they thought they had. They've lost their memories often. If it goes back years and years, the cheating goes back years and years. They've lost what they thought the future was gonna be. They've lost their present. There's so much loss and all of it is relational. Mm. And then what I see happen is for betrayed partners to be able to do what you need to do to help yourself with your healing, you have to do things that are going to risk more loss. So for example, if you need to set a boundary around, let's say you've got a spouse who's very, very sick, their acting out has been uh, extreme, it's gone on for years, and you know they can't get well and outpatient, they've gotta go to residential treatment. And you've got to set a boundary where you ask them to go to residential treatment. And your boundary is that if they don't, you're going to need to formally separate from them. Well, that's an enormous risk 
because what if they say, no, I'm not going. And then you have to separate from them. Right. And it feels like the, the addict, the cheating partner would have all of the power. Yes. And you then will experience more loss. Mm-hmm. Right. Because now you have to, you know, somebody's got to move out of the house. It's just more loss. And so I think what happens for partners a lot of times is that they have enormous fear about asking for what they need, setting boundaries, using their voice effectively, all the things they need to do because mm-hmm. they are afraid they're going to experience more loss. And instead, because they don't know how to push through that fear and do what they need to do, they will often instead remain in powerlessness and stay powerless and stay focused on what is my partner doing? What is my partner not doing? And they will use language as though they have no ability to influence what's going on with their partner at all. Mm -hmm. They're sort of at the mercy Mm -hmm. of what their partner is doing. They've sort of forgotten that oh, I do have a choice here. I could do something about this for myself. But in order to do that, I would have to risk loss. I would have to put something on the line and risk my partner saying no. And that is so scary and so dysregulating. Mm -hmm. Partners will stay in a helpless stance a lot of times instead and stay in disempowerment and Mm -hmm. powerlessness instead. And then I think you've got the socialization piece on top of that. Mm-hmm. you know, sort of a bent toward that. Right. So I think there are reasons why this is happening, but I think it is, to me, it is the biggest thing that we're focused on, like in the coaching program, the biggest thing we're focused on is helping people move through this fear mm. and face this fear and move through it. Because you can be a therapist working with a betrayed partner and you've taught them how to set boundaries. You've taught them how to use their voice. You've taught them all this stuff and they're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of therapists, I think, get stuck there. And they think like, I don't know what else to do. And the reality is you've got to now walk into the heart of the fear. Mm. Because until you walk into the heart of the fear that's keeping the person from being able to use the skills you've taught them, they're going to stay stuck. And they're going to stay in disempowerment and powerlessness and helplessness. And so I think our job as therapists is to be really aware of this fear dynamic, that it's relational, that it's about our attachment systems. It's about the fear of relational loss and help partners move into and face the fear. Because ultimately, as a betrayed partner, you need to be able to leave your relationship if you need to in order to choose to stay in your relationship. Mm -hmm. You don't want to stay because you're stuck. You want to stay because you have chosen to stay. So you have to have the ego strength. I say, if if no is not an option, you can't really ever say yes. You can't say yes. Yeah, you can't do it. So you've got to have the ego strength. You've got to grow your ego strength and your inner resources and resilience until you could say no. And I think that's a big journey for a lot of partners because they don't have that at the beginning. They don't have that ability to say no. So that's a lot of the work that's happening, you know, in therapy and in recovery. So let me give you an example. I see sometimes partners who, you know, they're, they're more in the advance. They've done some uh, boundary setting, gotten clear with themselves, explored options, and I've decided to stay and their partner, their cheating partner is 
working on recovery, right? And getting more honest and getting more transparent and relational. And I have them often just say to me, like, there's just this, like, I can trust 75%, right? Like, I don't know if I can go to, you know, 95%. Is that still going back into the fear? Like, what, what, what do you do in those situations? Or what would you talk to partners about then? Yeah, I think it's, uh, that's absolutely about the fear, right? It's that fear of becoming vulnerable again. You know, I can do it up to a certain degree, but when I hit this one layer or level of vulnerability, I can't go past that. I'm going to be too vulnerable to this person who could hurt me again. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is a lot of work on the fear it's a lot of work on the vulnerability. It's a lot of work, honestly, with the couple. Mm-hmm. Because I think at that point, it isn't just up to the betrayed partner to push through that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. It's really up to them as a couple to team together to be able to do that. And in some ways, it's like, let's say it's a she in this circumstance. She shouldn't be asked to, to jump over the cliff by herself. Right. Right. They've got to jump off together. They've got to hold hands and jump off together. And they've got to be there for one another as they do that. So I think there's a lot of work with the couple mm-hmm. for that last 30% or 25% of trust of learning how to do that with one another. But then there is also a place where the betrayed partner does have to say, I'm going to go into the fear. I'm going to go mm-hmm. through the fear here. And we, I talk a lot with my partners about anticipatory fear Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is like the anticipation of going off the cliff and then you jump off the cliff and you find out, Oh, it was only a foot foot drop. (laughs) The ground was right there for me. I didn't know, you know? And so I think there is a place where the partners do have to do that. And I think one of the things that helps partners is to help them think about what if the worst were to happen? Mm -hmm. What if you made yourself vulnerable again and your partner relapsed, et cetera. I think partners hold in their mind, you know, the first discovery is such a blindsiding event. And they hold that in their mind. They don't ever want to be blindsided like that again. And I think doing some processing around, if this were to happen, it's not going to feel the same way it did the first time. Mm -hmm. It's not going, you have all these skills you've built. You've got all this internal strength that you didn't have before. You've got a community around you. You know where to go to for help and support. Like it's not going to feel, even if the worst were to happen, Mm -hmm. it's not going to feel like it did back here. I remember one of my partners that I worked with years ago and when she came into therapy, early on therapy, I don't know, she asked me some question. I don't remember what it was, but I basically said to her, I said, look, the goal is for you to be in a place where even if your spouse went off the rails again, you knew to the core of your being that you would still be okay. Mm. And she was like, well, that is a pipe dream. (laughs) She was like, that is a pipe dream. I do not believe you. I do not think it is that, you know? And I was like, well, let's just see. And by the time she left therapy, she said to me, she said, I absolutely know that if my husband were to relapse, if he were to go back into his addiction, I would be absolutely okay. Mm. She had done all the work and built that internal mm-hmm. resources. So I think some of it is helping partners catch that vision for the change inside of them 
mm -hmm. can happen so that even if it's not that it wouldn't be painful, it's not that it wouldn't be disappointing, et cetera, but it's not going to knock you down like that first thing did. Right. It's not going to do that to you again. We have where I work, I think just in the population of Utah, we have a lot of partners coming in who you know, are also, there's that layer because they're financially dependent, right? They're stay-at-home moms. They have not worked since they were 19, 20. Often don't have skills to get a job to support what they would need, right? So they're not, they know that. They're saying like, I'm not going to be financially independent. I'm not going to be you know, financially able to give my kids and myself the lifestyle we've had, we've been used to. And mm -hmm. so that can take some time getting them to that place where they know that they will be okay if the worst happens, right? If their partner goes off the rails and doesn't get back on, that they can jump themselves and rescue themselves. Yeah, I think that is, you know, that is one of those dynamics where I think it can feel for a betrayed partner in that circumstance the powerlessness can feel really, really big mm -hmm. because of the lack of access to financial resources. Mm -hmm. And so it does take a lot of work over time on it, creativity, mm -hmm. you know, really being able to think about what, what would I do if this were to happen? What could happen? Really helping the partner start to think about how do I have a plan Mm -hmm. or if this were to happen. Because without that sense of there is some kind of plan and resources for me that I've identified and I've had to get creative and maybe my lifestyle wouldn't be the same, but I know I would be okay or whatever it is. If that isn't there, then that feeling of powerlessness stays really high mm -hmm. and you will then act out of your powerlessness towards your partner. Mm -hmm. You know, you act out of that powerlessness within the relationship because it feels so bad. Right. It does not feel good to be powerless and stuck in a relationship. Mm -hmm. So what we want with betrayed partners is for them to, over time, be able to do whatever it is in their circumstances. Everybody's circumstances are so different, mm -hmm. but that moves them out of that feeling of powerlessness mm -hmm. and into choice and taking responsibility for themselves, coming to their own rescue, knowing what they're going to do to help themselves in the what if kind of situations. I could talk to you for another hour, but I told you we had a time frame, and I'm going to honor that for you. But any final words as we wrap up or things that you say to partners who are starting this journey or are in the journey and have been for a while? You know, I think the biggest thing that I say to partners who are starting the journey is that there is a really clear path through like it isn't mysterious like we know how to get you from point a to point b mm -hmm. you know? and it is absolutely possible to come out the other side of this and be a whole flourishing person and that is it doesn't feel like that at the beginning you know it's so devastating at the beginning but it is absolutely possible to come through it and come out the other end and come out the other end stronger and more resilient and with a new perspective and building a different life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the biggest thing I really want betrayed partners to be aware of is that that is absolutely possible to do. Right. Yeah. I love that. And I love seeing partners get to that place. Yes. Yeah. It's so rewarding. Yep. So again, your website is the center for relational recovery. Right. So it's relationalrecovery.com for the counseling center. 
Yeah. And it's partnerhope.com. I blog there about partner, betrayed partners. So there's lots of resources there on that blog. You can subscribe to the blog. There's a masterclass on that website that partners can watch. That's about an hour long. It's free. And then there's also the coaching program and all of that mm-hmm. on the Partner Hope website. And I can't say enough to listeners just about how solid your resources are and the work that you guys are doing, um, offering resources to partners. I think it's some of the best work out there for partners right now. Well, thank you. I really, uh, I love doing it. I love the work that we're doing. I love seeing people change their lives Mm -hmm. and what can happen. It's really, really fun. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for sharing your knowledge with us and what is available to partners. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.